All right. You want to do the intro? Uh, oh, yeah. We're doing a podcast. <laughs> okay. Well, um, welcome to the Tree Planners podcast. This is our fifth episode. And today we are joined by Tim Gray, Executive Director of Environmental Defense. And we're going to talk a little bit about the election and what's happening as far as sort of advocating for the environment uh, in this current election campaign. Also, of course, Margaret's joining us, right? Yes. Hello. Yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit about a a national uh, initiative called One Earth, One Vote and environmental defense. And Tim are, are, you know, a part of the organizing in the campaign as well as the Simcoe County Green Book Coalition. So we thought it'd be good as this campaign rolls on and people are tiring of some of the spin and everything to remind people that this election really is about um, connecting with values and it's, it's an urgent election. Thanks, Tim, for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with a little bit about the One Earth, One Vote and what actually is it about? How did it come to be and and what is the campaign about? Yeah, so about a year ago, a number of uh, larger environmental organizations in Canada that work on uh, federal policy got together thinking, okay, the next election is is clearly going to be really important from... Uh, environmental point of view. Uh, We could see that uh, public opinion polls were showing rising concern around the environment generally, but climate change in particular. And, uh, you know, we thought, well, you know, it's a good possibility that uh, there's going to be some pretty stark policy choices being put out there by by parties. So uh, a number of those groups got together. We thought, okay, we are going to put something together that moves away from just focusing on our individual organizational brands and, and takes advantage of the reach of all of these organizations. And that's about like 5 million people that we can reach collectively through our supporter lists. So this includes um, environmental defense, obviously, but also other organizations that a lot of folks would have heard of at a national scale. So David Suzuki Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Canadian Parks and Motor Society, uh, et cetera. So we uh, put together a program that we end up calling One Earth, One Vote. And to motivate people to think about the environment when they're looking at their candidates and making decisions about who they're going to vote for. So we developed a, a bunch of materials that word mark and some um, great little videos and uh, photos that people could use and carry those in line, as well as uh, work with uh, some youth groups and um, also brought that information, uh, you know, the sort of background policy information that goes with that uh, online and to all candidates meetings, etc. So this is a way of of trying to reach a large number of people. And then as we get closer to election day, a number of the groups are actually going to be doing direct get out the vote campaigns where they talk to their supporters on advanced polling days and on the day of the election itself, texting them saying, hey, did you vote? Are you going to go out and vote if you didn't? <laughs> get off your butt and vote because this uh, this election really matters, etc." So we, we put that material together and then we uh, did it intentionally so that it wouldn't be branded with uh, with the logos of the organizations that, that developed it. So that it could be what we call open sourced. So made available to 
uh, people that uh, uh, would want to use it. So Simcoe County Greenbelt Coalition was one. There are uh, progressive businesses, faith organizations. So now we have another 15 beyond the initial core organizations that are using the material too. And uh, you know we can make it available to whoever else wants to use it in the, in the remaining time in the next month uh, up to the, uh, the federal election. So how many groups are involved now, you're saying? We're about 24 groups right now. Um, and it's pretty diverse. I mean, everything from the Sisters of St. Joseph to uh, the David Suzuki <laughs> Foundation and Beauty Counter, which sells non-toxic beauty products. So um, most of it is civil society organizations, but we're starting to get some companies involved now too. Yeah, so we've got um, this email your candidates form that we're using. And uh, do you... So that's one tool. Are there other tools that? Uh... Yeah. So people can, you know, it depends on their capacity. Like some smaller organizations that don't have much of a web presence, you know, they may only be able to email their supporters. You can just use the the material that we've developed online. If you have maybe a Facebook presence that uh, you as an individual have, there's little. Um, things you can wrap around your picture that say one earth, one vote. <laughs> I did it. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> so you can, you can get that from the site and you can, uh, you can uh, tell your friends that you're thinking about that when you're voting. Um, so you can do it both individually, but also as an organization and, and uh, anyone who kind of wants more technical directions on how to do that, we, we can uh, help out or I'm sure that you guys could do that through uh, the, the Greenbelt Coalition as well, because uh, you're doing it yourselves. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what do you think you were saying before? I mean, Adam and I have been talking a lot about how uh, the environment is, is much broader than people think. I mean, I, I would feel like when I was younger growing up, the environment was just like about trees. And now it seems we have this really broad perspective of biodiversity and climate and about land use planning and, and all sorts of things. So do you feel that there is that growing awareness about the environment being larger? Do you think people are still kind of stuck in this? Is that what that what this campaign is trying to hone in on? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think, uh, you know, sometimes I just think, you know, finally people are seeing you know, environmental issues as integrative, right? Like it's not uh, like the one environment thing or environment as a nice to have, like, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll do the tree thing after we do the economic development thing. I think especially younger generations are really seeing that, you know, if we don't address environmental issues in a more holistic way, uh, and that is everything, as you said, from, from land use to biodiversity conservation to addressing climate change, that you know, we're not going to have options to do the other part of things that we want to do in our society. And that our failure to address these things is, is why we're, we're having so many huge problems, uh, both in Canada, but also on a global scale. So I think people are turning the corner on that and, and seeing the, the public interest in, in environmental issues be up and number one or number two in our federal election, I think is a really good indicator of that. We are, unfortunately, I think, though, still struggling with perhaps um, people from older generations who you know, do see, like, in, somewhat, in some misinformed way, I, I would argue, uh, like an inherent conflict between protecting the environment and, and other social and economic values. And, you know, that's, that's wrong. And I think those, who, those of us who have worked on this for a long time understand that. But I think younger people intuitively understand that these things need to be uh, integrated and addressed together. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned uh, earlier stark policy choices. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, you've seen some of the extreme elements of this. Um, you know, we uh, you know they've got like 
one of our political parties who's taken a view that climate change, uh, you know, if it exists, isn't caused by humans. Um, and uh, we also have seen, you know, in the political discourse, uh, you know, the premier of uh, Ontario, the premier of uh, Alberta, uh, premier of uh, uh, Manitoba, uh, directly opposing carbon pricing, for example. Mm. And of course, carbon pricing has been developed, uh, you know, by pointy-headed economists as the uh, most effective and efficient way to move us towards a cleaner uh, energy uh, economy and to uh, reduce emissions, uh, but also to do that in a way that's economically sensible, which you know is integrative, does mm-hmm. look at addressing environmental problems through uh, an economic lens, and yet. Um, you know the premiers who have come from parties that you know talk about themselves as you know having core economic interests are actually opposing these measures. So you know, it's kind of an interesting time now where you know some of the the measures to integrate the environment into the economy are being most strongly opposed by uh, political parties that historically you know would have been more supportive of those kind of market-based approaches. Right. So it is a time where you know the the world's uh, a, a bit turned upside down. And I think that is being driven by some of the, you know, the uh, incumbent power sources in our society, like fossil fuel industry and stuff, really lashing out and trying to, to hang on to the, the traditional power structures that they've uh, relied on to maximize their profit at, at the expense of the rest of us. It was, um, as, as far as the, that um, starting to understand the environment in a more, more holistic sense, I was reading through the the conservative, a real plan for the environment, I think it's called, and uh, notice some interesting things in it. You had mentioned one of the parties, and I think I, I know who you're referring to. One of the parties sort of refuses to acknowledge that uh, climate change is a result of human activity. But there's something interesting in the conservative plan as well. Like when you on the very on the cover of it, you have a green. There's a, a nice image and there's a green leaf and then almost half of the page is taken up by sort of a like a close up of a almost like a microchip. And, and then throughout the rest of it, a lot of emphasis is placed on technology and developing technology innovation. We're going to we're going to find these technological solutions. We're going to innovate our way out of this problem and this crisis. And I think it's what that isn't looking at is the role that we play as human beings in terms of how we relate to, to nature in, in causing this, uh, you know, and a lot of that having to do with, you know, developing technology and exploiting the environment. And what that says to me is it's kind of, again, right, a, a refusal to kind of look in the mirror and look at what we're actually doing to create these issues, these problems. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, you know, I think there's kind of a, quite often extreme emphasis on technological solutions that are put forward and in a frame that says, don't worry, we don't need to really change anything because somebody's going to come up with the gee whiz way of fixing this. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think that's where the it's really dangerous to to think that or assume that. And I don't think any of us want to reject the value of uh, technological innovation if it's being driven within a frame of actually making a real difference around emissions. And you, know, you can think of some examples of where recent technological change actually offers some some hope of 
helping to drive the transition. You know, electric vehicles, I think, is, is a good example. I mean, so many of our global emissions come from transportation and moving away from internal combustion vehicles to electric vehicles would obviously be a very important innovation to help drive that. But, um, you know, you have to look at these technological uh, innovations through a lens of practicality and availability and whether they're actually helping to drive some of the fundamental changes that are that are needed around some of these things. And you know, EVs, for despite all of their uh, advantages, um, big part of our problem, the way we design our cities, the way we allow sprawl to cover the landscape and, and, and sterilize our areas where we would grow food, et cetera, is car culture. And so mm-hmm. you know, completely thinking, oh, well, we'll just have EVs. You know, that's not, <laughs> not going to stop sprawl. That's not going to change the way that we look at o- overall land use. It's not going to address the biodiversity crisis. So, uh, you know, we have to pick and choose among uh, the technological solutions that obviously, you know, prefer the ones that are actually available, could be deployed at scale, et cetera. So those are things like EVs, solar panels, uh, wind generation, et cetera. But not forget that uh, some of the things that we need to do um, really requires thinking like our food systems and other ways that we go about uh, production of of goods and services on the planet uh, away from uh, some of the the more destructive things that that we've been doing. And Mm -hmm. and the flip side of the the technological solutions would be... Yeah, I think it's you know rethinking systems, right? So you know the food one is one that I mentioned. So right now we have like this chemically driven, uh, high energy input, uh, wasteful food systems that we are increasingly moving to on the planet, and that some of the consequences of those in terms of human health, ecological health, uh, toxification of the environment, uh, pollution of our own bodies high energy dependence, high energy in terms of inputs for farming, fertilization, loss of soil, all the things that go with these food systems, um, none of them are sustainable currently. So you can't just kind of techno fix your way out of that. You need to really rethink uh, what we're doing there and uh, change the food systems, change people's behavior around the food that they eat, et cetera. So you know, a lot of these things require a system change. Another one, um, that we work on is, is plastics, right? So waste more broadly, but just use plastics as an example. Massive growth, a growth of um, uh, the use of disposable plastic over the last 30 or 40 years, almost none of it uh, recycled, about 11% uh, in Canada, the rest of it all ending up in the environment in some way. That whole system needs to be circularized. Like we should not be pulling oil out of the ground to make plastic to then throw it into the environment. You know, the plastic that we're making all should become something uh, reused to be something else again. So that requires a complete re-figure, reconfiguring of the system, uh, massive new employment and the collection and, and, and reuse of all those materials and um, a massive diminishment of the raw materials being taken into that system. And, you know, you can apply that kind of thinking to many other uh, areas uh, of our economy that we really need to completely retool if they're going to become sustainable and, and not contributing to the, the rapid uh, diminishment of environmental quality of the planet. And I guess, mm-hmm. I guess these, a lot of these solutions that you're talking about, they're cheaper too. They are, and they're income generating and employment generating. I mean, there's been a, an estimate that if we circularize the, the plastic system in, in Canada, for example, there'd be 40,000 new people working just on the collection side of that alone. 
never mind the, the remanufacturing, et cetera. So, uh, you know, this is not, again, like a choice between, oh, well, if we're going to do the thing that makes more sense environmentally, it's like wear a hair shirt and live in a cave. It, it really can be something that, that generates new employment, higher quality of life, more people working at interesting jobs, uh, lots of uh, new technology deployed in this, but it has a focus. It's not just hoping for the best and bolting on new technology into the existing broken systems. Mm-hmm. Well, for so long, you know, the environment has been like an afterthought, right? It's like, oh, well, you know, who cares? We're going to pollute that wetland for a little bit and we'll figure it out. Some, you know, somehow it'll get fixed. But the reality of it is it has to become that first lens, right? The Whether it be climate or that sort of thing, um, as you're saying, but the systems. And I think that's why like the Green New Deal, for example, has taken off in popularity because it's actually looking at climate change and environmental change from a systemic point of view versus, you know, oh, let's just, uh, you know, make our blue box program stronger. Or let's make change all the light bulbs. It really has to be a larger scale change. And the thing that I like about the One Earth, One Vote is at least starts to shift people into thinking that their vote can actually matter in changing the system. Um but, you know, it's, it's trying to get people to convince, I think there's so much cynicism with our politics, that to try to connect them back to their values that might actually make them go to the polls where they're just like, oh, my vote won't matter. It doesn't really matter. I'm just going to stay at home to really say, no, your your vote actually does make a difference um, and, and trying to connect them with that. So just, you know, kudos to that campaign for sure. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that was our idea is the, to start with the people that we actually can reach as organizations. Um, you know, I, Quite often, you hear people saying, "Oh, we have to really convince the people who hate the environment, you know, to think better about it." But you know, there's kind of a rule, and uh, when you're working on social issues, is you know, at least motivate the people who already are, you know, agree with you or you can reach. And some of the folks that are stridently opposed to your point of view, like, sure, I mean, you should try and talk to them, but they're probably not the ones you want to motivate first. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The uh, you've mentioned. Um, so part of this transition would be beneficial in terms of employment and interesting jobs and things like that. And one of the, uh, th- there's a really strong emphasis on social justice. Could you maybe expand that a little bit? How social justice is inter interlinked with environmental concerns? Yeah, I think it needs to be. I mean, on, on the kind of uh, disbenefit side, I mean, you think of how much uh, of our current way of producing goods and services and the, and the toxic byproducts of that um, have been uh, imposed on, on communities of color, for example. Like, you know, a good example here in Ontario, look at where Chemical Valley is in Ontario and, mm-hmm. and look who's most polluted by that. Uh, it's the Aboriginal communities that you know live in direct proximity to the smokestacks in, in the in chemical valley outside of Sarnia. And the examples of that, you know, exist all across North America. So that's kind of the, the, the traditional way <laughs> of dealing with the, the really highly localized, highly negative consequences of our existing industrial produ- uh, production systems. But on the, you know, the more positive side, like Green New Deal kind of approach to these things is to think about, okay, well, we know that change is coming. You know, Alberta being an example where we know that uh, fossil fuel expansion has to stop and then eventually uh, we have to constrain and, and, and shut down fossil fuel production. So what happens to the, the workers there, right? Like all the people who know how to build pipes and drill holes in the ground and do all those kind of heavy industrial things related to fossil fuel development. So there's a lot of 
you know, conversation about the need for government to step up and, and invest in the transition the way that they invested in bringing uh, the tar sands online. The tar sands would never have existed without massive, massive government investment and research and development and direct subsidy of that industry until it became uh, viable enough to be invested in by um, the fossil fuel majors. So, you know, what about the fact that uh, Alberta and BC are sitting on uh, some of the best uh, geothermal potential in the world, uh, just below the surface, uh, in a place where you've got massive expertise in drilling and pipe fitting and all the things you need to do to make geothermal into an electrical source, as well as a, a burgeoning demand for electricity as we need to electrify our entire energy system within North America. Like the Canadian government, the Alberta government, needs to be on top of that, working with unions and working with civil society that help advance that transition to make it much more politically and socially possible to uh, slow the, the, the growth and eventually phase out the production of fossil fuels in this country. And we need to do that more broadly in other places in the world as well. Um, and we failed to do that kind of stuff in the past. You know, our traditional approach to these things is just to let the resource be uh, exhausted and then just uh, say to the people that are left behind, like, too bad. And you can think of the cod fishery or uh, the extinction of old growth forests in Canada where you know, we argued that we had to keep doing it until we couldn't because the system was broken. And then we just uh, threw the fate of all those who were effective to the wind. And, and they, you know, they were up to, uh, they, up to their own devices to figure out a way to survive. Well, that, that doesn't make any sense. And if you don't plan for the future, you end up having a, a big portion of the population that is very resistant to necessary change, which ultimately doesn't help them, but is very damaging to the rest of us because the, you know, the thing that has to stop keeps going. Mm-hmm. So we're just coming near the end here, Tim, and I'm just wondering, you know, Adam and I talk a lot about what we're concerned about, and, and obviously we're trying to be patient. Uh, you, I don't know if you saw Greta Thunberg today. She was talking at the UN uh, Climate uh, Convention and, and basically told them, like, you're not doing enough. And so I'm I'm going into the election feeling like... Is anybody really doing enough? And even if the Curries are going to do enough, is it, you know, is it is it ambitious enough? And are the ones that are that are going to be ambitious enough the ones that have any uh, persuasion or influence? But I was curious, kind of what um, two questions? One, what are your concerns for the environment after this election or going into the election? And two. What do you think people that are concerned, like myself and Adam, you know, how should we, what what issues should we be directly addressing with our MPP or other MP candidates? Yeah, I think going into this election, like we haven't had responses from all the parties to uh, questionnaires, like not all the platforms are out yet, like the liberal platform isn't out yet, and, and not all the details around the conservative one are either. So we'll see. But regardless of that, I mean, I think, you know, immediately after the election, uh, no matter who forms government, you know, we just have to demand more. I mean, maybe we'll see uh, some party come out with a platform that is, uh, you know, equivalent to the challenge uh, that we have, and that 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 party will get elected. You know, we'll we'll see on October 21st. But you know, I, I think there's basically no country in the world right now that has uh, uh, an actual 
policy program that is up to the challenge that science articulates for us around the climate and biodiversity crisis. So we all have to hit the ground running right after the election and uh, to push for more and to push for it to be done quickly. You know, I think the, the younger people, like you're mentioning Greta Thunberg and, and, and you know, other and the thousands or millions of other people that are marching on the streets, we just have to make it politically impossible to say no to urgent action on this. You know, people have compared the challenge here to a global scale Marshall Plan, you know, the Marshall Plan being the rebuilding of Europe after the Second World War. You know, that's what we have to do. Billions and billions of dollars have to be re redirected. Our taxation systems need to be redirected. We need to spend real money, not you know, a few million dollars spread across Canada on small projects and hope for the best. Now, this is complete retooling of the economy and anything less than that, we, we just can't accept it from any of our governments. And so what are some things, you know, as candidates are going around, do you think that they should hold, that people should hold their feet to the fire about? Yeah, I mean, there's individual pieces of that, like say, you know, are you going to legislate uh, your, you know, will your party legislate uh, compliance with meeting the, the the Paris Agreement, you know, that is keeping warming below 1.5 degrees. Like, would you support a bill in the Canadian Parliament to make it illegal not to have programs that meet that? And that's a clear thing that you can ask for. Would your government require that uh, vehicle emission standards continue to climb at least at the same pace as California's, which is the most aggressive uh, in North America? You know, would your government uh, require that vehicle manufacturers sell an increasing percentage of electric vehicles every year or face fines. So very specific things that uh, you, know, you would ask them at the door. And, and you can find some of these uh, things on, on our website, Environmental Defense. Uh, many other organizations are uh, have that kind of material there. So it, it's important, I think, to do research on particular things. And you know, to be able to ask your MPs uh, questions that are you know, kind of yes, no <laughs> kind of questions. Um, and just to, to see sort of where they're at overall uh, on these issues. And then post-election, uh, it's going to require constant engagement with them and, and with your broader community around them. Yeah, there'll be vigilance afterwards as well. <laughs> Probably more so, I would say. For sure, yeah. As 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 you and I and, and Adam know, like it's the constant vigilance between the elections that uh, <laughs> you know, really is the proof of the pudding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's really true. It's really true. Uh, anything else, Adam? Uh, yes, but uh, you know, uh, as well as I do, that we always go far too long, and I end up having to edit everything out. So. <laughs> <laughs>